Hello and welcome back to Security Insights, the podcast that takes a deeper look at today's most important issues in cybersecurity and beyond. I'm Stephen Pritchard, editor and presenter. In this episode, we take a look at some of the key events and developments in cybersecurity in 2023 and look forward to some of the trends of 2024. Our guest is a long-standing leader in the cybersecurity industry, Amanda Finch. As CEO of the Chartered Institute of Information Security, she's very well placed to take stock of where the industry is right now. And Amanda is also at the forefront of developing the next generation of cyber professionals through a range of initiatives, including the Institute's Cyber EPQ. First, I asked her to give her views on the current level of cyber threats and what CISOs should prioritise. I think the big thing that stands out is the geopolitical side of things, um, is that the volumes really turned up on that in the last year or so, um, particularly in the last few months. Um, and we've been living with the Ukraine crisis for uh, two years now, but um, with Israel coming into the frame as well and just seeing the, um, the amount of... Um, different sorts of attacks, electronic attacks uh, that we've, we've seen in, in that sphere. It's, it's sort of t- polarised people. And um, you've, you've seen a huge split uh, within the world of the people that support Russia and the people that support Ukraine, people that support Israel, the people that support um, uh, the Palestinians. So um, what I think you're seeing with that as well is that um, uh, organisations are having to work far more collaboratively and we've seen that uh, with um, the people that we've been talking to is whereas previously um uh, uh, different um, suppliers or vendors would want to keep a certain amount of information secret and almost use it to be um, a sort of like a, a commercial advantage. We're actually seeing the whole community collaborate in terms of how they're dealing with threats. So if you think back to the um, the one that we had earlier where the electoral, um, there was a, a data breach for the electoral um, system, um, but you had NCSE working with the suppliers, working with with the uh, organisation uh, to actually fix it. And uh, we had our, um, our, our annual event at um, uh, Manchester where we had 500 people come along um, in November and we did a case study there where a university had been hacked um, by uh, a, a power. Um, basically, um, and that uh, the NCSC had to get involved and um, the university was obviously involved and the vendors were involved and they had to keep it incredibly quiet in order to be able to fix what the problem was and really understand the problem. So that whole collaboration of dealing with state-sponsored attacks um, is, 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 is taking on a, a, another form really uh, as it gets more sophisticated um i think the other thing is ransomware that's continues to be um the, the biggest threat in many ways is that uh, it just seems to get more and more and in fact when um, i went to see the um ncsc review of the year they were talking about the fact that actually there's almost obscurity now because there are so many ransom uh, ransomware attacks that it's actually difficult 
for, for criminals to um, hone in on some of them because they've got too much data. So you may get hacked uh, with a ransomware uh, problem, but you might not have uh, actually an impact of it uh, because they're too busy dealing with somebody else and probably looking for richer pickings. So um, those are two of the sort of the attack things. Um, AI, I think we've probably heard enough about AI for one year. Um, is that that's been the the, the, um, the watchword for everybody and how it's going to change security. Um, I, I think that it, it will change things, but um, it will be really a case of we'll have to adapt to it. And so people have been talking about the fact that it's going to put certain roles um, out of um, being required. But I think that some roles will be less needed um, as we automate things. But then we're going to need to move people to other um, forms of work because they need to be able to deal with the AI threats. So, uh, and, and the data that we're actually getting. Uh, and in many ways, we're just getting so much data now to, to, to actually look at. So um, it's, it's very much the same, but I just say that the volume's been turned up more than anything over the last year. Well, if we were to draw a thread over the last couple of years of what's really been changing, and it's not a standout moment, it's not a wake up and revelation type thing, it's more we've seen this steady but possibly accelerating digitization of many aspects of life. So it's not just business, it's public sector, it's uh, what people do outside of work as well. And obviously that was given an acceleration during the periods of lockdown, but it was a trend that existed before that. But I wonder if whether there's been a lag between the way we do business or the way we do things moving online and actually the infrastructure side catching up with that and the security side catching up with that. And particularly we did see, and I know you and I talked about it and other people on the podcast talked about it as well during lockdown, that you know, companies rushed to digitize processes. They rushed to open up remote access and then they, they did the security fix later. But I wonder whether going back to that fundamental that we're just doing more online and therefore this whole question of the attack surface is an inexorable direction of travel that actually security as an industry has yet to catch up with? I think security is is generally playing catch up. Um, and I think it's always been ever thus. And um, the, the pandemic and the lockdowns um, accelerated that because people needed to work, um, people needed to communicate, uh, and businesses needed to function. And so um, it was a case of sort of going into battle against the virus and, and getting people up and running. Um, and um, yes, that, that, that there were vulnerabilities that were obviously opened up as, as people were using um, home equipment uh, rather than company equipment to work. And uh, yeah, the bolt-ons had to go on afterwards. Um, so uh, there is there was always a level of catch up there. Um, I think the other thing that came out of the pandemic is that people were actually working even harder. Uh, because where you had uh, the lag of being able to go to a meeting or having a walk from one office to another office, um, many of us are just doing back-to-back -back meetings. Um, and the level of stress, uh, which was high before the pandemic, I think is even higher now um, as people are trying to cram more and more into their days. Uh, and we're certainly seeing a lot more people talking about um, burnout and stress and um, our 
um, recent survey um, highlighted all of those issues um, is that people are actually more concerned about the levels of workloads that they've got than the attacks themselves. So it, it's quite hard. Um, many people are working over the um, government um, maximum hours um, where they're, they're, they're probably going to be driving themselves into having a breakdown. So um, I think that's that's the legacy that uh, COVID has given us. When you have those levels of stress and that level of, of busyness, of course, that's where mistakes get made, isn't it? So we'll look at the attack surface in a moment, but potentially... You know, I, I did a couple of interviews during the pandemic with, with various experts in the industry who were saying you know, you'd have to push security right in order to get things done and that the trend more broadly is meant to be pushing it left. I wonder whether organisations have actually gone in and patched the problems that they created for themselves. And, you know, we, we hear this, for example, talking to people about cloud security, that there's a lot of cloud instances which simply haven't been secured, you know, open storage containers, for example. So very basic things that could be done to improve security, just not done. And, and maybe that work that people were saying, we'll do this after the pandemic, we'll do this after we've deployed the solution, we'll go back in and apply these fixes. Human nature, maybe some of them didn't get done, maybe some of them just weren't done well enough. What do you think? Oh, I, I completely agree with you. I think that um, a, a lot of people um, put things on a to-do to to tomorrow, basically, is that they had so much to do that day that they're saying, yes, let's do it tomorrow. Let's just leave it until there's a roll-up roll up patch. And also trying to work out whether um, actually trying to apply fixes is going to make uh, the, the, the whole um, work situation worse for people because um, machines were going to be failing. So I think, again, yes, there's a the confusion um, of, of all of that. And when we look at most of the attacks um, that um, over, over the years, um, most of them have been um, due to poor uh, cyber hygiene. So, um, yeah, I think things probably got left more than they would do normally. And as we do more online, does that just become a bigger problem? And this leads into the whole issue of skills and recruitment and retention in the industry as well. But if we are doing more online and we're replacing physical processes with digital processes, then we need digital security. Is that part and parcel of what's going on there that simply... And that's probably to the benefit of society as a whole if we're doing more online because it's more efficient and it's more accessible but it's just that volume that's causing some of the problems. Yeah, I, yeah the volume is definitely an issue, um, but I think some things get better and some things get worse. Um, if, we'd have, if we go back to the pandemic, if we'd had the pandemic, let's say, three or four years earlier, I don't think technology would have been able to cope. I was absolutely stunned at how well um, Teams and Zoom stood up um, during the pandemic um, and how... Um, we were able to move to a, a remote working um, operation within a very, very short time. I think that would have been far, far more difficult um, even three years um, earlier. So um, as the te technology improves, um, some things get better. But as you say, the more that we um, use technology, uh, the bigger the surface. And uh, it's the interconnectability of it all that um, causes the, the, the issues because you've got so many people that are connected um, and it just makes the whole supply chain um, issue even worse. 
if we have an increasing attack surface and we have potentially more critical operations, more critical systems, more critical tasks being created online, how do we position ourselves as an industry so we are not playing catch up quite as much and start to get ahead of some of the threats and actually ahead of this developmental curve? So once people start to think about digitizing processes or digitizing workflows or putting things into the online space, they consider security and resourcing the security at the outset of that work? Well, it's been something that we've been calling for for years, is to build security in rather than bolt it on at the end. Uh, and it's always that friction between um, uh, vendors wanting to take something to market as quickly as possible in order to be able to um, sort of get get first to market um, with the security aspects of making it secure. So I think we're winning a little bit uh, in the sense that I think that, um, uh, that, that developers are probably building in more than they did do, let's say, five years or so ago. Uh, so that's one aspect, because if you build it in, it's usually a lot easier. The other aspect is that we need to automate as many of the um, repetitive tasks as possible so that a lot of the grunt work is taken away. But you need to keep that level of people and maybe even increase the number of people that are actually looking at the problems as well. I mean, every year um, our survey camp comes out with the um, uh, the, 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 the uh, finding that um, people remain the biggest issue in security, whether it's lack of people that are able to um, be looking after systems or whether it's educating users to make them work safely. But there's no point in having systems if people can't interact with them. So people are obviously at the core of this. But what we need to do is to use resource um, far more carefully. So uh, we need to automate where we can. We need to bring in people uh, from other uh, sectors that may not be as expensive so that you're actually getting more of a bang for your buck from your workforce in terms of um, protecting your systems. Um, and I think there's a whole thing of professionalization as well. I mean, we're seeing um, the um, um, introduction of charter, uh, royal chartering uh, for um, uh, cyber professionals, and I think that as well is um, is is raising the, the the stakes in terms of people understanding that this is a profession now, and that you need to have people that are trained in uh, what they do, um, looking after your systems. Well, indeed, because you wouldn't want to go to an untrained medic or an untrained accountant. No, that uh, fortunately we're no longer dealing in snake oil and uh, and voodoo. Uh, on that side. So we just, yeah, you're absolutely right. But in the coming year, are there any particular, let's say, let's start with policy. Are there any areas around policy that you think are likely to cause issues within the industry and new regulation, for example? We've got a number of pieces of legislation working its way through the various political organizations in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. So um, the regulatory burden, regulatory burden, if I can even say that correctly, will increase. Uh, and at the same time, we don't really see any prospect of a reduction in the threat. Well, I think one of the big problems is the fact that there's so there's so many different sorts of re regulation um, depending on where you are and where you're actually working as well. So trying to actually navigate the minefield of um, privacy legislation globally 
um, is is difficult, um, and uh, in many ways, it's going to drive organisations to offshore to countries where potentially there's less legislation um, because there's less red tape uh, to deal with. So um, um, that's that that is an issue. I mean, legislation is good um, because it tries to keep us all honest, um, but it's it needs to be fairly simple in in many ways. And it needs to echo itself, um, you know, across jurisdictions. Are you seeing organisations and CISOs start to prepare for legislative changes, such as, for example, DORA? I, I think the larger organisations are. Um, but again, it's the whole problem of going down the supply chain, is that the larger organisations will have the resource to, to, to look at those sort of issues. Uh, whereas the smaller organisations haven't. So um, it's it's a mix, basically. It's a mix. That tends to be more reactive. Yeah, I think so. What about building capability, though, in the industry? And again, that can be at individual business levels. It can be at the educational level. It can be at government level. But, you know, we're still seeing these various estimates being talked about of I think it's gone up from 3.2 to 3.5 million vacancies worldwide in cybersecurity. It doesn't show any sign of reducing and in fact analysts are reporting that the problem is getting worse. Is it possible to shed any, any light on what could be done there and are there any reasons why that gap is increasing other than say we're doing more business digitally which probably is one of the factors as we've discussed. Well, I think the thing is that cyber is competing um, with other professions uh, for good talent. Um, so in many ways, uh, we need to make ourselves seem more attractive um, to, to individuals so that they want to go into cyber. We spend an awful lot of time trying to dispel the myth that um, the only job in um, cyber is um, basically pen testing and um, um, ethical hacking, because uh, that's the stereotype that people think about when they think of cyber. So what we need to do is that we need to understand the skills that we need in order to be able to counteract uh, the threats. And some of those are technical, obviously, but we're seeing um, across our membership that people are looking for more analytical skills, communication skills, problem solving skills. Now, those are very, very transferable skills from um, other um, job families, basically. So um, as we go into a world that's going to be increasingly automated, we need to attract those people into our community and develop the um, pathways for them. And we need to get to people young as well. I mean, over the last two years, we've been uh, running a cyber EPQ, which we took over from Bletchley Park. And um, the, the biggest barrier we've seen to schools um, taking up the cyber EPQ is money and time and the fear that teachers have that they don't understand um, cyber. So we've um, had some funding from um, DCIT, uh, which has enabled us to go into schools and to offer them EPQs free of charge, completely free of charge. And to explain to the um, teachers that uh, will be supervising the students, they don't need to understand cyber. We understand cyber. We're the people that can um, advise them on that, help them to uh, develop the, um, the, the the project side of it, which they need to submit at the end. Uh, and, and all the content is online. So um, it's, it's easy. And once we've got over that um, barrier, 
um, we're finding that schools really, really want to take up the cyber EPQ, that uh, once we get into a school, they're really keen. So it's taking that back to earlier and earlier levels so that you've got cyber first. But really, we should be looking at cyber almost um, from from sort of uh, starting school age, you know, five year kids that are five, six, seven, eight, nine years old. Different messages, obviously, but just build it into the DNA. Yeah, it's a long game, isn't it? And the EPQ is an interesting one because it's an example of work that's being done and work that can be done to demystify. So I completely understand what you're saying. And schools are saying we don't have the capability to deliver this. We don't have you know, sufficiently trained teachers. We don't have computer science teachers. I think there's some figures going around that apparently computer science has seen more exits of people from the teaching profession than, than any other discipline, which would be a great shame if that is true. But anecdotally, you certainly hear of that with uh, schools and colleges struggling, for example, to deliver A-level courses. But if you can support the educators to provide this type of learning, then that will have a massive benefit down the line. However, it's a long game, isn't it? Because if you're talking about people potentially starting this track aged 14 or older, which is the minimum age, uh, many of them would start a bit later, but you're not going to see them in the workforce for another potentially eight years, maybe five years at the very best. How do you persuade the industry to support initiatives like this just so that they can take that long-term view, you know, potentially beyond our retirement ages? Well, there's 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 a number of ways really. Is that one is is to obviously get um, kids to go on to the EPQ, but also building the links between industry um, and education as well, and that's something that we're um, launching at the moment. Is that we want to get industry to to, to help fund the EPQ, um, so that they are building links with um, local schools and showing the career pathways. Um, and um, offering um, work placements or people that are early career starters from their organisation uh, to talk to people in schools. So there's the whole thing of engaging industry with schools. But then I think that uh, we need to get industry to encourage people to join the security profession um, as job changers um, mid, mid, mid-career. There's no reason why you can't teach cyber to people Um, is that if they've got the innate skills of problem solving or um, analysis or good communication skills, um, you can teach you can teach the knowledge. You can teach people how to do risk management. You can teach people, you know, how to um, c- come from a, a corporate comms environment into um, a, a, an environment where you're talking about security messages and um, being able to uh, raise awareness and um, improve security culture. So it's taking those skills uh, from other areas. And as we see demographics change in terms of um, the the roles that people are doing, uh, we need to snap them up and uh, and organisations need to invest in taking people that are not cyber um, trained already and and building their own capability. And we do a lot of this within SciSec. Uh, with our corporate members is that we we get them to understand what they need as um, an organization in terms of a security function and how that could be actually built by taking people in from um, different areas of the business. When you talk about industry, I think it's important to emphasize that we're not just talking about 
the security vendors or the pen testing businesses or the consultancy firms, although they're important, a lot of what you're talking about really sits within the consumers of information security, if we can call it that. So the businesses that do whatever it is, manufacturing, transport, logistics, healthcare, any of those things, government, who need two categories of people, if I could put it that way. They need skilled security professionals, and then they need people who are doing their day-to-day -day roles who understand security and risk and have that as part of their awareness. It's that cyber awareness thing and consciousness. If I do this with data, it's going to cause a problem later on. It's going to cause a security or a privacy failure. So what would you say we could do within the coming year to perhaps cement that understanding so that people do realize that actually creating security awareness across the board is is such a valuable thing to do it's communication it has to be based on people talking to each other and, and getting things onto the agenda so that it it becomes more in the front of their mind than the, the, the back of their mind um because everybody's busy um if you're a, a, a consumer of security um, you've got a day job that you need to deliver. Um, and it's just to try and embed those security principles in your day day job, basically, so that uh, people do think about, gosh, what does happen if, you know, if, 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 uh, if, I, if I can't access the system? Um, what, what, what am I going to do? How am I going to, how am I going to get uh, the project to market? How am I going to, um, I don't know, deliver the project, um, manufacture something? I mean, manufacturing, um, if you look at um, uh, big manufacturers, uh, availability is incredibly important to them. Um, if their production line goes down, for two or three days because of a ransomware attack, you know, that's really going to affect the bottom line. And so it's really embe embedding that sort of thinking into people so that they think, Christ, you know, if this goes wrong um, and we lose the plant for three days, um, that could potentially wipe out our product, our, our um, profit for the year. It is often described or seen as a, an insurance policy, but it's a bit more than that, isn't it? Because actually, if you do security well, you're probably also going to be more effective in what you're delivering because it just forces that discipline. At what point do we do this with data and what are we trying to do with that data? No, I think it's, uh, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It's probably a cultural thing that is, uh, if you're good at your job um, and that uh, you're professional, um, then it's there's a good chance that your security awareness is going to be higher as well. So it's probably a state of mind that we need to get into. Amanda Finch on how communications and getting everyone to talk to each other is at the core of improving information security. You can find out more about the Chartered Institute of Information Security on their website, which is ciisec.org, or if you want to go straight to the information on the Cyber EPQ, it's forward slash development dash hub forward slash Cyber EPQ. That, though, is all for this episode of Security Insights, and indeed, this is the last in this series and the last episode for 2023. We'll be back on January the 11th, when our guest will be Chris Dimitriadis, Chief Global Strategy Officer at ISARCA. He'll be sharing his thoughts on both the opportunities and the threats we're likely to face in 2024. 
Until then, do catch up on past programmes on our website, securityinsights.co.uk, or subscribe and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. Security Insights is written and presented by Stephen Pritchard and produced by ENS Media. For more information, visit us at www.ensmedia.co.uk forward slash podcasting.